Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, Mark chapter 6, I'm going to begin this morning by throwing out some, some names to you, and I, I want you to think about what they all have in common. Four names. What do these names have in common? Bob Ross, Bonzi Wells, David Letterman, Jim Davis. If you're a Muncie native, you've been living here for a little while, I know that's an easy, easy question. These are all people with connections to Muncie in the end. They're not necessarily from Muncie, not all of them were born here, um, but all have very strong connections to our local area. And this uh, can be a source of pride for a lot of communities, right? You know, we are interested to know who are the famous people who have come from our cities or our hometown. So that's four pretty famous people who have come out of, of Muncie. Um, so a source of pride. We're, we're proud, I think, mostly of, of these four individuals. Um, but you know, it's not always the case that hometown people are proud of famous people who come from their hometown. And an example of that would be a guy named Kurt Vonnegut. Now this was a very famous writer in the 1900s, famous novelist, and he was from Indianapolis. And he had already gained a certain amount of fame. He lived in New York City at this time. A number of his books were out. And he returned to Indianapolis for a book signing. So he went downtown Indianapolis at L.S. Ayers. Some of you might remember that department store. And so he went to L.S. Ayers to do a book signing in Indianapolis, his hometown, and nobody showed up. A few family members showed up, okay, to be, to be clear. Uh, but but nobody, nobody showed up. The only books that he gave were to, to family members. And he said, actually, he was, he was crushed by that. Came back to his hometown. Nobody showed any appreciation. So hometowns aren't always so proud of the people who come up through them. I want you to imagine for a moment um, what it would be like if Jesus Christ were from Muncie. What if Jesus were from Muncie, went to Muncie Central? You saw him over at the mall occasionally, lived down the street from you. What if Jesus were from Muncie? Do you think, would that mean, do you think, that everybody in Muncie would believe in him because he was a hometown boy? Do you think that would make it easier for people to receive Jesus as as Savior and Lord? I mean, we might be tempted to say, yeah, you know, because there he is. We see him every day. We go to school with him. We walk down the street with him. But friends, don't count on that, because Jesus had a hometown, it wasn't Muncie, but it was Nazareth, and the passage we're about to read here shows Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth, and it does not go well. He is met in Nazareth with an astonishing degree of unbelief, and that's what our passage is about today. This is... I think I can safely say, the chief, biggest, most serious problem of the human race. It's not actually global warming. It's not actually inflation. It's unbelief. The most serious sin that plagues the human heart. Now, let me distinguish doubt from unbelief. A lot of us deal with doubt. Probably all of us have dealt with doubt at some time. Doubt is something that we want to respond to with with patience and, and pity and mercy, 
I'm not talking about just doubts. I'm talking about unbelief. I'm talking about here the deliberate rejection of the one that God has sent to save the race. That's unbelief. And that's what Jesus faced in Nazareth. It's kind of a shocking thing, actually. But that's what we're going to read about. So if you're able to stand, <clears throat> please do that. Stand in out of respect for God's Word. I'm going to read Mark 6, 1 through 13. Mark 6, 1 through 13. <clears throat> it says, He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty words done, mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And... He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Holy Spirit, would you please come, give us ears to hear, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, so we're considering today in our series on Mark, Jesus and unbelief. How is Jesus dealing with unbelief? And we've got just two points this morning, and so the first thing we want to see um, is the unbelief that is displayed here toward Jesus himself. So unbelief toward Jesus. Let's see what this passage says, verses 1 through 6 in particular here. Um, as Jesus goes back to Nazareth, let's just answer this question first of all, what did he do? What did Jesus do when he came back to Nazareth. We see this in verse 1, he went away and came to his hometown. Again, that is referring to Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he didn't remain in Bethlehem. Family moved to Nazareth, and so that's where he grew up. And by the way, Nazareth as a town, it still exists in northern Israel. You can visit Nazareth today. Very interesting to note that Nazareth, Nazareth has a population of about 77,000 people, which is almost exactly the number of people who live in Muncie. So Nazareth today is about the size of Muncie. And so Jesus here heading back to Nazareth, he takes his disciples with him. We see they're coming along. That tells us that this is not just a personal visit to go back and hang out with family, but rather Jesus has ministry business in mind. And so he takes his disciples with him. So what is it though that, that Jesus actually does? And I think this is worth noting 
and that is that he taught. That, that was his priority when he went back to Nazareth. He, he taught. Now, we know, of course, that um, Jesus, and, and it's very you know, common to understand Jesus to be kind of a miracle worker and a healer. He raised people from the dead. He um, cast out demons, and he did a lot of very miraculous things, and we don't want to discount those things. Those are very important, but I would say that the most um, intentional, deliberate part of Jesus' ministry was actually to be a teacher and a preacher. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we miss that. You know, Jesus was a preacher. Um, you know, we don't have a super high regard for sermons in our current culture. I think if you look it up in the dictionary, it says something like a tiresome speech. That's what a sermon is. Uh, And so we don't have a super high regard for uh, sermons, uh, but Jesus thought sermons were very important. He thought teaching was very important. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 1 where um, Jesus had performed some healings and his people or his uh, disciples came to him, it says, and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. You know, you've been doing all of these miracles and there's all these people who need you. And then Jesus says to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there because that's why I came out. (laughs) So he avoids the crowds and he goes to another town to preach. And that's what he's doing here in Nazareth in the synagogue. He goes in there and he starts teaching. Now it would be wonderful to get the content of this sermon or this teaching, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be great to know what he said. You know, we can't go on YouTube and see this. Um, We don't even have copies of what he actually said, but we do know that whatever he said, he said it really, really well. That Jesus was an unbelievably skilled and gifted speaker and teacher. And so that's why it says in verse 2 that the ones who heard him, they were astonished. And they said, where does this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? They are very, very impressed. And so that leads us to this second question. How did people respond to Jesus' teaching? So at some level, they were impressed. They recognized the wisdom and the quality of what Jesus was saying in his teaching. But they kind of started to think about it a little bit they started to, to reflect a little more on who it was they were listening to. <clears throat> and they started saying things like in verse 3, wait a minute, I mean, this is pretty good stuff that we're getting here, but isn't this the carpenter? I mean, th- this isn't some guy who's come out of rabbinical school, the rabbi that everybody knows about. This, this guy is a carpenter. And so here we see this is what Jesus did for a living, right? He, he worked as a carpenter. He worked with his hands for a good portion of his life up till he was about 30 years old when his earthly ministry began. This is known about him, right? He's in his hometown. People know this is Jesus the carpenter, and so they're kind of starting to doubt who he is and what he's saying. And then they go on, and they say, yeah, not only is this the carpenter, but this is actually the son of Mary. Is not this the son of Mary? Now, why is that... Interesting. Why, why should we take notice of that? Because you would expect that what they would say is, isn't this the son of Joseph? Because that's how people were known. They were known by their father. That the, the name of the father would take priority over the name of the mother. I mean, it's very much like it is today, right? I mean, we, we take the last name, mostly, of our father. My name is O'Bannon, because that was my dad's name. Now, my dad no longer is alive. He's deceased. Some people think Joseph was deceased at, at this time. That very well could be. But now that my father is deceased, I don't call myself Bob Tanger. 
because that's my mom's name. I don't take my mom's name now that my dad is deceased. I'm continuing to be Bob O'Bannon. And so you would think that they would say about Jesus that he's not the the son of Mary, but he's the son of, of Joseph. So why are they calling him the son of Mary? And, you know, this is a little bit speculative, maybe. We, we don't know, but we know the mood here. They're not really liking what they're hearing here uh, from Jesus. It's most likely that this crowd means this as kind of an insult. Because remember how Mary gave birth to Jesus. It, it was known that Mary did not have relations with her husband, Joseph, in order to give birth to Jesus. It, it was a virgin birth. And not everybody believed that. All they know was Mary gave birth to a baby and she wasn't married. This is an out-of-wedlock birth, and Jesus is an illegitimate son. And so probably what they're saying is, isn't this this illegitimate son? Isn't this, isn't, isn't this guy, this, this person who was born in this sinful situation? And so it's, it's meant as, a, as an insult, and they're just thinking through this. And, you know, their, their level of impression, or their, their level of... Um, of, of, uh, of positive thoughts about Jesus' teaching here are, are beginning to, to wane and to be mitigated. And so they also note um, <clears throat> that uh, Jesus had these brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Judas, that's not the Judas who betrayed him, by the way. That's, um, that's, that's Jude. Uh, Jude changed his name probably because of the negative connotation with Judas after Judas did betray, betray Jesus. So this is the same Jude who wrote the letter of Jude, uh, same James who wrote letter of James in our Bibles. And so these are men who came to believe in Jesus eventually, but they don't believe in him now. But the purpose here for the crowd is just to note that here's this guy with his brothers, his sisters are mentioned also, not named. But in other words, this is just this ordinary guy, Jesus. But, but think of the things that he's saying. Now, we don't have a copy of this, right? I know we don't have a copy, but we know what Jesus said in many, many other places. Stuff like, no one comes to the Father but through me. <laughs> I and the Father are one. He who does not believe in me will be condemned. And you can imagine if he's saying those kinds of things that the people are probably thinking, what? Mary's son? James' brother? The carpenter? Who does this guy think he is? And so there, there is a... Uh, a, a warning here. So just to kind of sum up about how they, they responded, you, you see that in uh, verse 3, that they took offense at him. In verse 3, they took offense at him. I, I can't believe that you would say these things. Who, who are you? It's like, I think what's going on here is, maybe you've seen this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that? that sometimes you can get so close and so familiar with something that, that you begin to lose respect for it or, or him. You begin to lose your ability to appreciate it because you're so familiar with it. I mean, there is a huge challenge for us. I mean, there's a challenge here for Christians and non-Christians. The challenge for Christians is, is that we as believers, particularly those of us brought up in Christian homes, particularly those of us who might have gone to a Christian school or at a Christian college now, there's this danger of just becoming overly familiar with Jesus. And, and we just, honestly, we just kind of get bored with it all. We've heard it so many times, and we lose a sense of wonder. It's like kids going to Disney World. You know, the first couple of times, they're just 
overwhelmed with all the rides and the characters and they just think it's the wonderful thing, then, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth time and they're just kind of, yeah, I know, I've been here before, been there, done that. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, have you fallen into that place in your spiritual life? Just Jesus really just isn't that big deal to you anymore. You're so familiar with him, you've lost a sense of wonder. You've forgotten what the gospel is really declaring, that the God of the universe has entered our world and he entered our world to pursue you and save you. And that he's resurrected from the dead to overcome the powers of death. I mean, how do we get bored with that? But we do. We do. Christians do. All of us do. I do. I know you do too. So there's a challenge here for Christians. There's also a challenge here for non-Christians though, I think. And and it seems like the people here in Nazareth are probably mostly non-Christians. And probably these people in Nazareth just had this preconceived notion about who Jesus was supposed to be or what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And when Jesus comes along and he's different than what they expected, they reject him. You know, you ever hear people say things like, well, you know, my God wouldn't do that. You know, I know that some Christians say that God is like this, but not my God. What happens if the real God is different than your God? And that seems to be what's happening with these people in Nazareth. They just have their preconceived expectation of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. They couldn't imagine that the Messiah could actually be a a real man, a human being. And so, when something different came to them than what they expected, they were offended. I mean, that's a sure sign that someone has wrong expectations of who Jesus is supposed to be when they get offended by him. And that's what's going on here in Nazareth. So that's how people respond. But one other thing here, what was the result of all of this? What was the result? Well, there is a chilling verse here in verse 5. And by the way, I didn't even mention verse 4. That's kind of sums up everything I just explained to you. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. So, He's just saying, there, I'm, I'm back at home, and uh, I, I have no honor here because people are just are so familiar with me. But then in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there, it says. He could do no mighty work there. And so the result of all of this is, is, is no mighty work. There's, there's no, the, 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 the grace and the miraculous work of God is withdrawn. It's taken away here from these people in Nazareth. I mean, let's be clear here. This is not saying that Jesus has got his hands tied. It's not saying that, uh, you know, he's wanting to do these works, but he is rendered incapable because the passage goes on to say that actually he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He did have the power to do that. But it seems to be that the reason that Jesus could not is because he would not. And the reason he would not is because he met with all of this unbelief in Nazareth. And so that's why it says at the end of verse 6 there, he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. Man, this must have been great. Can you admit, what does it take to amaze Jesus? What does it take to make him stand back and just go, wow? Unbelief. Jesus just stands back and says, "I, I mean... I perform miracles before you. I have taught before you. I have made claims about me, about you, about myself, and, and your hearts are hard, and you're filled with unbelief. And so, what Jesus says is, "Okay, I'm going to withdraw from this area." 
Uh, there's a passage back in chapter 4, I think verse 25. Do you remember? It's kind of a um, difficult passage maybe to understand, but when Jesus says, to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There, you know, there is no record of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth after this. Even what they had was taken away. Jesus, the hometown boy, he was right there in their midst the whole time. And they responded in unbelief, and Jesus said, I'll go elsewhere. And boy, there's a warning there, isn't it? I mean, you know, we live in the United States of America, church on every corner, Bibles in every bookstore. And yet our nation seems to largely have taken offense at him now. So we shouldn't be surprised if he doesn't do mighty works in a place of unbelief. But a common view toward Jesus very often is people will say, show me a mighty work, God, and then I'll believe in you. And, and I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is it doesn't work that way. It's believe in me, and then I'll show you a mighty work. And so Hebrews 11 says this, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you're filled with unbelief, don't be complaining that you don't see the mighty work of God. Belief comes first, and that was not present in the town of Nazareth. So the second point, second point, two points here today, is we also see unbelief toward Jesus' messengers, not just toward Him, but to those that He sent out. So uh, we, we see here, as we begin in verse 7 and go through the rest of the passage, that Jesus um, never intended to carry out his earthly ministry just on his, on his own. He, he intended to employ others, ordinary people that he just gathered to himself, and, and he used them. We call them disciples, uh, apostles, and that's what's happening here in verse 7. He called the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, and he began to send them out then two by Two. So, why two by two? Well, probably just for basic practical common sense reasons, just for company. They can pray for each other. They have different gifts and abilities. But also because in the Old Testament it says that two witnesses are necessary to establish the credibility of a case. So, that could be the reason also that Jesus is sending them out in pairs. But here they are, these apostles. They're sent out on this great missionary journey. They're sent out with the gospel. And one thing we might say at this point is, I'm kind of surprised that Jesus is doing this because it doesn't really seem like the apostles are really prepared for this. <laughs> I mean, remember, it was, wasn't too long ago that uh, the disciples and Jesus were in that boat and Jesus was rebuking them all for their lack of faith. And now Jesus is sending them out. I mean, we might say, are, are, they, are they prepared? And, and the answer is no, they're not. They're not prepared. And you know what? There's a sense in which none of us are ever really prepared <laughs> for Christian ministry. We, we all lack a level of preparation. Our vision statement here at the church is that we want to see ordinary people empowered for extraordinary work by the power of the gospel. We're all ordinary, but we have an extraordinary God who does extraordinary things through ordinary people. Weak people, inadequate people. And so Jesus says, 12 it's time. So he sends them out and he gives them some instructions. So first of all, among the instructions that Jesus gives, what to take, verses 8 to 9, he tells them what they should take, and uh, what they should take is virtually 
nothing. <laughs> Virtually nothing. Verse 8, take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread or bag, money in their belts, wear sandals, and not put on two tunics. A tunic is an overcoat, so can't take two, take one. Just one coat, sandals, but no bread, no money. Um, so we might think, what, what in the world's going on? Why? Why is he doing this? I think we need to be careful here that we don't press this too far. Um, you know, not every single thing that happens in the New Testament is something that we also need to do. This is a very specific, unique situation with Jesus and his apostles. In other words, if you go on a mission trip, it's okay if you take some money and food with you. I don't think that's what this is saying. Um, but what Jesus is, is apparently trying to do with these disciples is, is he's trying to get them to trust not in their supplies, but in the God who is faithful to promise to supply everything that they need. Because there is that temptation, isn't there, to just trust in our supplies, to trust in our things. Even in the church today, hey, we got a big building, we got a great website, we got a lot of money, certainly the Lord is going to use us. <laughs> There's this temptation to trust things rather than trust the gospel. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel because that's the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself, you can have nothing and proclaim the gospel and people can be saved. And that seems to be what Jesus is trying to communicate here to his disciples. This is what James Edwards said, uh, the twelve must travel light lest worldly cares blunt the urgency of their message. If they go with an elaborate support system for every eventuality, then they need not go in faith. And apart from faith, their proclamation is not believable. So, what to take? Not much. How about where to stay? Jesus gives directions in verse 10 for where to stay. And he says to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, don't stay long. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're on kingdom business here. This is not time to go on a sightseeing tour. It's not time to take a day for shopping. Um, when you go to a house, get ready to leave and get on with your business. Stay on task. So there's an urgency in Jesus' instructions here for the disciples. But then the third thing here that I want you to see, um, and this is perhaps most significant, is verse 11 where he tells them what to do. And in particular, he tells them what to do in the case of unbelief. And so he says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So this was a common Jewish practice. When, when Jews would go into Gentile lands that would be unclean, when they would come back to the promised land, they would shake off the dust of their feet. They would shake their feet as a way of kind of shaking off the contamination or pollution that they received from being in these Gentile lands. And this action came to be understood as a, as a, as a rebuke, as an admonishment. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when you shake your feet off at these towns, it's your way of pronouncing that these are pagan, unbelieving, unbelieving hardened, heathen towns. And Jesus says, you can make that pronouncement if they respond to your message in unbelief. I had a friend um, from seminary uh, once who took a church, and um, <clears throat> there was some conflict between him and the church, and the congregation did some things to him that were very offensive. 
Uh, he felt that he was mistreated, and so uh, I don't know if he resigned or got fired or what, but he was there in church on the very last day, and he spoke to the congregation. And, and afterward, he walked down the center aisle, and he turned around, and he shook his feet at the congregation. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the right thing to do, <laughs> Um, but I know what his intention was. His intention was to rebuke and admonish that congregation. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's, what he, that, that's the authority he is given, giving to his messengers to do to certain towns that reject the gospel. So we might stop here and just think, you know, why, why such a severe response? I mean, why would Jesus tell his apostles, I mean, to do that, it seems really judgmental, doesn't it? I mean, it seems very intolerant, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think one reason why is simply, again, because of the very serious nature of unbelief. I mean, I know we have all done many things that we regret and things that might bring us shame and, and guilt, and, and I'm included among them, but probably the worst of them all is unbelief. And, you know, that's just something that all of us are wrestling with. It's just, you know, if you ever think you're good enough to earn your salvation, you just have to be reminded there's unbelief in your heart. And, and God hates that. And so he says to these messengers, shake, shake off your feet. I mean, they, you know, this is the, the rightful response to unbelief. But something else here that's going on is that there is um, an authority that Jesus is giving to his apostles, to his messengers, um, that makes it possible for them to pronounce this judgment on these towns. Um, in, in other words, these towns should consider that when they hear from the messengers of Jesus, for them it ought to carry just the same authority as if they heard from Jesus himself. And that's what the apostles were set apart to do. They were granted the authority to speak on Jesus' behalf. And there's nothing less authoritative, authoritative about what the messenger said than what Jesus himself says. And so Jesus says in the Gospels in many places, but here's an example. He says, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. When I send my apostles to proclaim the gospel and to write in the New Testament all that I've done and said, when you receive them, you receive me. There's no difference in authority. There's no difference in the strength and the truthfulness of those messages. And I just think, you know, sometimes there are people who they'll read the Bible and they'll see Jesus say some things about love maybe, and they'll say, yeah, I like that. I like when Jesus talks about love. And then they'll go and read Paul, and Paul will say something about God's wrath, and they'll say, yeah, I don't like that so much. So, here's what I'll do. I'll take Jesus and reject Paul. You know, we all love Jesus, but yeah, Paul, you know, he had his issues, and Peter too, and so, you know, sometimes people read the Bible that way. They just kind of pick and choose, and they favor what Jesus says and reject a lot of what the apostles say, and friends, that's just not an option. When you hear from Jesus' apostles, you are hearing from Jesus himself. And that's why the New Testament is so important and so valuable to us. And this is how John Stott says that the apostles of Jesus Christ were unique for their opinion and authority are Christ's. And if we would bow to his authority, we must therefore bow to theirs. But there's an expectation here that people aren't going to receive the apostles that way. And when these messengers go into these towns, that again, they're going to meet with unbelief. So, 
This is the summary, friends. This is kind of a depressing passage in some ways. Unbelief in Nazareth. Unbelief in the surrounding towns. The question for us this morning is, is there unbelief in Yorktown? Is there unbelief in Muncie? Is there unbelief in this room right now? You know, there's a phrase, sometimes people say, that some things are too good to be true. You've heard that. In other words, what that means is some things are hard to believe. Some things are unbelievable. They sound so good, they're unbelievable. And in a lot of cases, you know what? That's true. But the one exception is the gospel. It might sound too good to be true, but it's not, because it is true. And what the Scripture says is that, yeah, there, there is a God that God is real, that God really does exist. We are not alone in this universe. And that you can actually know that God. You can have a personal relationship with Him. And, and you can know that He loves you and accepts you, that He's for you, the creator of the universe. You can know that He's for you. The reason that you can know that is because of what we read in the Scriptures, that a Savior was sent. Jesus Christ was sent into this world, and that was actually God Himself coming into this world. And that Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue you. And the way He did that is He lived on this earth perfectly. The only perfect man who ever lived did everything right. Everything right. No one else has ever done that. No one else ever will. Jesus did it all right and yet we rejected him. And in our sin, we have come under the condemnation of God. But Jesus, in his love, he, he, just, he went ahead. He, he knew that people didn't deserve his love, but nonetheless, he went to a cross and he laid down his life. He gave himself. He gave himself into death. He bled. He died. He died an excruciating death out of love for you. And then he was raised from the dead. I mean, the greatest miracle that has ever occurred. He overcame the powers of death. He overcame the powers of Satan. He overcame the powers of your sin. That sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it is true. And the question is, do you believe that? Or is your heart filled with unbelief? Do you remember, I'll just leave you with this, do you remember the story of doubting Thomas? Remember in John chapter 20, Thomas is a disciple of Jesus, and he hears about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, uh, but he says, I don't believe it. And I'm not going to believe it unless I see him. And so Jesus comes to Thomas. And Jesus shows himself to Thomas. And he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, oh, my Lord and my God. And he falls down and he worships Jesus. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you know who he's talking about when he says that? Those who have not seen and yet believed? You and me. We didn't see Jesus. We weren't, we weren't there. We didn't see him walking on the earth. That's what he's talking about. But we can believe in him based on what his messengers have said. We don't see him, but the message has been preserved for us, and it's in the scriptures, and it's proclaimed from pulpits that the Messiah has come. And Jesus says there is a special blessing for people who believe even when they haven't seen. 
And that's a blessing for you, a blessing that you can enjoy. So friends, let me just say what Jesus said to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe and be saved. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that what seems too good to be true actually is true beyond our wildest imagination. Um, Lord, give us hearts that believe, Father. We know that that is a work of your spirit, and so we plead with you. Give us hearts that believe. In Jesus' name, amen.